Hello and welcome to Unorthodoxy. I'm Duncan Rayburn and this is episode 4 in my footnotes to the Book of Job series. I'm dedicating this episode to my friend Gideon Nell because he did the design work for this podcast and also because I think some of this stuff fits in with things he and I have talked about um, in the past and also because he is particularly fond of the Book of Job. I'm going to post a link to his website in the show description because he does amazing design and illustration work and you should check it out. Um, And you should also check out his information visualization called Beautiful Water, which I'll also post a link for because it looks at some of the ways that water functions thematically throughout the Bible, which I think is is fantastic as a kind of continuation of, of some of the ideas I will be talking about now. So whether Gideon likes it or not, he's getting a promo here. Uh, for free. So as you have probably realized by this point in this series, I'm not exactly sticking to one subject. In any case, whenever you're talking about good literature, it's hardly possible to talk only about one thing. Because like all good literature, the book of Job is about far more than the obvious. It's not just about a character named Job who went through the valley of the shadow of death, but is about the whole of existence. It has amazing insights into all kinds of dimensions of human experience, how we relate to each other and the cosmos and to monumental and difficult metaphysical questions. So far, we've looked at a few things, especially relating to the question of how to negotiate the meanings of Job and the question of how to adopt a polyphonic mind. The previous episode then dealt with the question of the meaning of life. And I should have mentioned there that Job's posture towards the meaning of life is actually confirmed by his friend Eliphaz. In particular, Eliphaz puts forward the idea recorded in Job 4 verse 6 that Job's piety should be the source of his hope. That's an amazing idea. Um, Your innate value and value system should act as a kind of compass for how you navigate the difficult aspects of existence. In fact, in reading Eliphaz's um, speech, Many people assume that he is telling Job that he deserves his lot, but there's a way of reading it that suggests that what he is really doing is encouraging Job to look beyond his present troubles into an alternate reality, or at least a reality beyond his present reality. This strategy may not be the very best one he could offer as a comforter of Job, a so-called comforter, I guess. When people are going through hell, it isn't necessarily the best thing to simply tell them that they should get over it. Anyway, Eliphaz seems to suggest that one of the ways that Job is going to survive the chaos of his own experiences is to look at his own history, at the way that his uprightness has served him in the past. Chaos is clearly a major theme, not only in Job, but in fact in the whole Bible, and I would say the whole of life. And to understand how it plays out, it helps to turn to the primary symbols of chaos in the book of Job. The first symbol is the sea beast dragon monster thing called Leviathan, who is mentioned twice in the book of Job. And the second symbol is that of water itself. I'm going to be touching on water more briefly, uh, but I want to focus in here on, on Leviathan. The first time we encounter Leviathan's name in the book of Job is in chapter 3. By this point in the book, we know the spiel. God gives Satan the Satan character, free reign, with the result that Job's entire world falls completely apart. So by chapter 3, Job is already beginning to ask in a very big way what the point of all of this is. He's, 
He's also saying a few things about his own existence that are far from optimistic. In fact, by this point in the book of Job, by chapter 3, he starts to speak in an alarmingly nihilistic way about the good that the undoing of his whole life would do. His birth, in his mind, should be cursed. The day of his birth should be viewed as a kind of thick blanket of night, and the moment that his existence was announced to the world should be a sign, not of hope, but of despair. And then in the midst of some rather beautiful and incredible poetry, Job utters these words. He says, May those who curse days curse that that day of my birth, those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. And this, at first, seems like a terribly odd thing to say. Job, in speaking about the unweaving of the tapestry of his own existence, connects this unweaving with waking Leviathan up. If there's anyone who is in the habit of cursing days, they could. Job suggests, denigrate the day he was born, although this would mean, in Job's estimation, that they would be continuing the habit that they have always enacted, which is the habit of waking Leviathan up. Job is not in any simple sense saying that cursing the day of his birth is an uncomplicated and easy thing. To curse his birth is to participate in calling the sea beast Leviathan out of the depths of the ocean, and that is really a frightening thing to do. Leviathan then features later on in the book of Job, again in chapters 40 and 41, and I think it's worth homing in on these strange references to this particular creature because I think it speaks to the dominant phenomenological dimension of existence, which is that life is in essence felt as a perpetual war, or perhaps a more positive metaphor would be a perpetual dance between order and chaos. Order is, by and large, what God symbolizes in the scripture, although that's not necessarily as uncomplicated as I've just put it. And by and large, chaos is symbolized by Leviathan. And also, later on, I'll get to the symbol of water. Leviathan is also mentioned in other places in the scriptures. In Amos 9 verse 3, we read about a gigantic serpent that God will send to bite rebellious Israelites. So the idea there is that chaos will erupt and that's going to be some form of punishment, or at least consequence, for what the Israelites have been up to. And then in Psalm 104, verse 26, we learn that God is the maker of all things, including, much to our surprise, the sea monster Leviathan. God is the maker of chaos. And in Psalm 74, God is said to break the heads of Leviathan. And yes, you heard me right, heads, plural. Leviathan is not just a monster, but a monstrosity. The idea here is that chaos is many-pronged. It's difficult to keep an eye on its many heads all at once, which is precisely why it's so difficult to deal with. Leviathan doesn't seem to have just one head. In this way, you could regard Leviathan as being a bit like the Hydra from Greek mythology. It's a, a kind of many, many-headed problem that when you when you try to deal with it by chopping off its only head, what will simply happen is that more heads will grow back as a result. And so, I mean, obviously that symbolizes further problems caused by trying to deal with the problem. And this is why if we take this weird parallelism in mythology seriously, God would need to crush all of the heads of Leviathan at the same time. And of course, even if (laughs) Leviathan is not quite like the Hydra, I may be forcing a connection here, and even if it doesn't have the ability to grow heads like kind of pimply adolescent grows acne, its end would depend on God doing a thorough job, you know, crushing all of its heads. 
weird poetic imagery, but, but kind of beautiful and profound in its own way. The idea of Leviathan's destruction is also referenced in Isaiah 27 verse 1, which tells us that at the end of days, Leviathan is going to be killed. In reference to this idea, although it's not you know, a direct reference, the book of Revelation has a dragon, which, while not referred to as Leviathan, does seem to look an awful lot like a Leviathan-esque kind of beastie. At the very, very least, it represents something similar to what Leviathan does. There are also other allusions to Leviathan in the scriptures, um, although they are easier to overlook unless we know what to look for. So, for instance, the creatures called great whales in the King James Version's Genesis translation are Leviathan-like water beasts, and even the gigantic fish in the book of Jonah is Leviathan-esque, although this is pretty much like everything else in the Bible, highly debatable. As an aside, when Jesus talks about giving people a sign of Jonah, um, he's talking about life after facing the dragon of chaos, not just life after death. I think life and death have, have kind of multiple poetic meanings in the scriptures, and I think we would do really well to look at those. And it's a really lovely idea to kind of ponder, you know, when you've been swallowed up by Leviathan, what happens after you've been spat out on the beach? You know, it may, what does life look like then? The interpretive trouble, given all of these references to Leviathan in the Bible, is that they are really not enough to give us a clear sense of the wider mythology. And if we don't have a sense of this wider mythology, we're likely to miss something um, of the meaning of Leviathan. I'd even contend that if we miss the meaning of Leviathan, we are likely to miss some of the more important aspects of the meanings of the book of Job. And that'll mean that we'll miss out on some fairly incredible insights on life itself. So let's get into some Jewish mythology. We're talking about stuff that's not in the Bible, but which the ancient rabbis try to clarify in, in their writings. So in the Talmud, we find various accounts and explanations for Leviathan, and not all of these perfectly line up. So I'm going to present something of a synthesis of these different Leviathan myths. What I end up with is probably more organized than it should legitimately be, but hopefully it helps to explain you know, some of the ideas and key symbolisms that are being presented to us. Maybe the best way to talk about chaos dragons in some way is to assume that we can't make sense of them fully, but I'm going to, in essence, say, well, we have to make some sense of them. So uh, here is my summary. As the apocryphal story goes, when God created the heavens and earth, and especially when he got into the bit about creating the various creatures that roamed the earth and swam in the seas and oceans, Leviathan was one of his proudest inventions. The uber-beast creature Behemoth, which also features in the book of Job, was also pretty impressive, as was the weird oversized bird called Aziz, which sounds a lot like something Dr. Seuss cooked up. But we're going to just focus on Leviathan for the sake of brevity and artistic license. As the mythology goes, God in fact made not one, but two leviathans. It was a kind of buy one, get one free thing, one male and one female, mostly for practical reproductive purposes. Although, as the story goes, reproduction turned out to have been less practical than it first appeared. Because these creatures were so enormous, the ocean couldn't actually accommodate both of them. And so <laughs> Leviathan babies would have clogged up the whole ocean completely. So to correct this creational oversight, as the mythology has it, God killed one of these Leviathans. It happened to be the female Leviathan. Incidentally, 
um, the feminine and chaos are often grouped in mythologies. Uh, what this did is it left a very sad and sexually frustrated male leviathan there to drink up the sea and swallow up the remains of dead fish all by himself. And this oddly depressing story serves to make some important points, one of which is that order and stability often requires a sacrifice. Losses need to be suffered before benefits can be reaped. But there's more to it than even this, and to unpack some further insights, it helps to pay attention to a similar mythological tale that we find from a culture that existed around approximately the same time as that of the ancient Hebrews, who first formulated these stories. The culture in question is that of ancient Sumeria. After brushing up on your cuneiform, or at least finding a decent translation, which is much easier, you'll discover one of the oldest creation myths, which is found in a text called Enuma Elish. It tells us about two gods of chaos, Apsu and Tiamat, and how these gods are overthrown by Ea and Marduk, respectively. Then, when the chaos gods are overthrown, Marduk proceeds to create the world and human beings. The Sumerian epic of creation tells us that when the skies weren't named yet and when the earth didn't have a title, Apsu, the freshwater god, and his partner Tiamat, the saltwater goddess and mother of all the gods, are, as the text says, mixing their waters together. Unfortunately, as the story goes, this mixing of the waters doesn't result in the forming of pastures. The lack of pastures here simply means that peace isn't forthcoming. Instead of peaceful pastures, the celestial sexual intercourse between these two gods of chaos does result in the creation of other gods, who are not a particularly pleasant bunch of gods. In fact, the next generation of gods turns out to be fond of making a ruckus. And this makes Apsu and Tiamat mad. Not only are they chaos gods, but now they are angry chaos gods. Rage produced even more rage, which is, I suppose, how a lot of life is. Chaos often begets more chaos. This kind of fits the image of, you know, cutting one head off a hydra and landing up with more heads appearing. So eventually a god named Ea comes along and decides to kill Apsu. This has some profound symbolism of its own. Every generation tries to, in a sense, get rid of what the previous generation stood for. It's a kind of adolescent urge along the lines of trying to achieve a better sense of individuation. Although we would do well to move past adolescence at some point. Out of the death of this one chaos god, the god Apsu, and with the goddess Damkina's maternal helping of Ea, Marduk is born. This is significant because there's this idea that when chaos like Apsu is eradicated, you get its opposite, order. Chaos symbolizes a kind of death, and order symbolizes a kind of resurrection. I am putting this too uh, simplistically, of course, since death and resurrection are not necessarily opposites, but can also uh, be kind of a simultaneous event. As bizarre as all this sounds, though, order and chaos are involved in a kind of unsettling and endless collaboration that involves those most ancient of Hollywood and biblical of categories, uh, sex and violence. Sex symbolizes life, obviously, and violence indicates death. Life and death are always collaborating in the existential struggle for survival and the struggle to find meaning. As it turns out, the god Marduk is quite a sight to behold. 
for the other gods when he's you know been created he's actually really difficult to look at which makes him a kind of anti celebrity um celebrity everyone wants to get a photo but cameras haven't been invented yet and in any case they would probably suffer from severe overexposure to Marduk's luminescent brilliance Marduk is a big deal he has eyes all around his head and he also has this uniquely commanding way of talking and this often involves some form of fire breathing so i mean this symbolizes a kind of really potent rhetorical ability his words in fact catch fire they are that incredible what happens next then is that Marduk challenges the chaos dragon goddess Tiamat to a fight which doesn't really impress Tiamat that much she actually flies off the hook again and she gets an R rating for the number of curse words she hurls into Marduk's face and then what happens is that Marduk catches Tiamat in a net and let's say that net is a symbol for meaning and for naming things and for encapsulating things in a network of linguistic and conceptual structures and then Marduk kills Tiamat. The symbol for order um, here is Marduk and he gets the chaos dragon to play dead for real. Then he takes her body and cuts it into bits and creates everything that we know uh, now as the world. That's how the myth goes. He creates people too. So as you can see, the story of God killing Leviathan at the beginning of creation looks an awful lot like the story of Marduk killing Tiamat. Because I think they're, they're supposed to form some kind of intertextual relation. And these stories look similar to the Egyptian narrative of the sun god Horus killing the serpent, serpent Apep, as well as another Sumerian myth which has the god Ninurta putting an end to the existence of a seven-headed serpent. There's that idea of, of Leviathan or the serpent or the beast having multiple heads. And also there's the Canaanite myth of Baal slaying the sea monster Yam. What we have here is what Jung would call an archetype, a universal pattern that should alert us to something that is going on within every human consciousness. In all of us, chaos and order are at war. Or perhaps they're dancing. Hope is going to arise only when order tames chaos, because that's when creation can happen. To put this more finely, chaos and order are perpetually at odds, but they are also, paradoxically, perpetually interdependent. It's like a kind of fairy tale ending, so to speak, where two parts of a very happy couple are together, order and chaos, although they do occasionally hurl the furniture at each other. This is, as I've already said, the real structure of experiential reality. Reality as we experience it is always comprised of chaos and order, and in the intersection between these two, order needs to come out on top so that creation can be made possible. If chaos wins, you end up with destruction and the negation of being. If order wins, you need to keep chaos at least somewhat intact so that you don't end up with some form of ideological totalitarianism. The tension between order and chaos is paramount. You need both. When God kills the one Leviathan monster, we have the same idea. And when Job talks about the waking up of Leviathan, together with how much he wishes he'd never been born, he's talking about how the chaos dragon is in fact alive and well. Yes, one chaos dragon died when God made the world. He made a pair of Leviathans. 
and then he had to get rid of one because there wasn't enough space. But he kept the second Leviathan. It, it's kind of like the fish that got away. It was always bound to show up and wreck everything. So that's the key idea here. One aspect of chaos may be under your control, but there's always another version or another kind of chaos or another manifestation of chaos that is going to threaten. With all of this in mind, let's have a look at an interesting idea. Tiamat, which is connected to the Akkadian word tamtu, is etymologically related or at least often compared by scholars to a Hebrew word. Although scholars, because they like practicing the fine art of being overly pedantic, still fight about the implications and truth of this, the word that Tiamat is linked to is tehom. Tehom literally means the deep or the abyss, and it actually refers to the primordial chaotic waters of creation in Genesis. So as I said, in the Bible, one symbol for chaos is the Leviathan. The other one is the ocean or the sea, which is a large body of water with all of its dark, unexplored abysses. So it's not just chaos per se, but the unknown that it represents. And this brings me to Genesis. There in Genesis is this abyss, this primordial chaos, and the Spirit of God hovers over the face of the waters, and the Spirit calls out, let there be light. And God says, let us create, which suggests that there is a kind of us-ness to divinity, a plurality or multiplicity within a unity. It's easy to see why Christians later looked at this and said, see, there is the Trinity, right? It's right there in Genesis. Well, maybe, uh, like the book of Job and like uh, the Sumerian creation myth, this is poetry. Its meanings are multiple, like God. In the Genesis account, God isn't actually violent like Marduk. He uses words to set up creation, not a sword through the belly of an angry dragon, which is pretty significant, because for the ancient Hebrew consciousness, it is the word that is the primary symbol for creation. Order happens because language makes sense out of things. It calls the chaos to order. And this is the idea that the writer John takes up in the New Testament when he says, in the beginning was the word. Although, that said, I've said that, you know, language is about, you know, peace. It's not violent. Well, words can be violent too. And I think we all know that. Sometimes you don't need a sword because words can be plenty violent enough. Still, it's helpful to mix this symbolism in with the Jewish myth that God has killed one Leviathan, but not the other. When we do this, when we mix these symbolic things together, we notice a few things. The first is that when God brings about order, he doesn't do this at the expense of chaos, but precisely in concert with chaos, which means that chaos is not so much an enemy as it is an ally. In fact, it is the material or matrix out of which order emerges. And we find this both in Darwinian evolution and in the Marduk story. This means that chaos is not necessarily outright evil, but is merely the kind of underbelly or shadow or unconscious of the order of things. Creation, in fact, owes its existence to the interplay of chaos and order. The chaos is the womb of creation, the undifferentiated matrix out of which order can emerge. It's also helpful to notice that we're dealing here in these ancient stories with what is known in scholarly circles as a functional ontology. 
This is not so much creation ex nihilo or out of nothing as it is creation out of something, albeit something a bit messy. A good example of a functional ontology is when you call a meeting or a courtroom to order. All the elements are there in place, but it's not yet ordered. It's not yet a courtroom, for instance, until someone speaks the word order in the court. or And it's not a meeting until someone says, let's start the meeting. And when they do this, a new mode of existence becomes possible that functions in a particular way. And this is, of course, in concert with the type of order that has been called. Functional ontologies suggest that nothing exists without a sense of purpose. This is, of course, why chaos is so disturbing from an existential point of view. When you have only chaos, you are essentially kind of left with non-being. What this means is that non-being is not so much the absence of being, but rather is the absence of a purpose to being. This all applies quite neatly to another key thing to notice about the Genesis creation story. And we notice this when we pay particular attention to the fact that God speaks order into chaos. What this symbolizes is that creation, to a huge degree, is a matter of subjective perception and our personal phenomenological engagement. To create a functional ontology out of the matrix of chaos is to subjectively choose to set a particular mode of being up against the chaos. And this subjectivity is obviously linked to language. God has to decide how the order ought to look, and we have to decide this too. And of course, language plays a very significant role in all of this. Let's take a moment then to notice what words in fact do. I'm, I'm sure you've thought about this, but it's just such a fascinating thing. Words include something, namely a kind of direction or a, a specific set of meanings, etc. But words mostly exclude things. If I say the word elephant or dungarees or onomatopoeia, there are more things that I don't mean by these words than what I do actually mean. So the affirmation of the word is smaller than what it negates. The word is a focal point that renders everything else relative and kind of fuzzy to its profound ordering power. But everything is not so much eradicated as it is kind of, kind of relegated to the kind of category of irrelevant. It's still there, but it isn't what we're supposed to pay attention to. So that's what language is, is there for. It, it helps us to pay attention. So you see, all perceptive, like language, is selective and reflective, but it is also primarily deflective. It selects something that is, is kind of picked out. It reflects it. it. It names what is part of reality, but it is deflective. It, it removes everything that is irrelevant to that kind of single focal point. In terms of our subjectivity, pure or absolute perception would be nothing filtered and would, I'm afraid, completely overwhelm and, I think, annihilate us. It would be chaos completely devoid of order and without Marduk's net of meaning or God's spirit of ordering or the word of um, John, this chaos would completely overcome us. In fact, this may be in part what, what those stories talk about in terms of what will happen to anyone who sees God. They will, in some sense, significant sense, die. God has to 
recede so that we get to exist. If there were only God, there would be no room for us. I think that's what these stories talk about. Hence, the Kabbalistic doctrine of Tzimtzum, or divine withdrawal. From a human perspective, pure and undiluted godness would be not a spirit hovering over the waters calling things to order, but pure, undiluted chaos. Pure unknownness. This is perhaps a tricky idea to swallow, since there's an idea in the Bible, and we see it here even in Job, that God isn't just the source of order, but is also somehow mysteriously the source of chaos too. God makes Leviathan, and he kills Leviathan, and there's a Leviathan left over that we still have to contend with. This provides us with a hint of the phenomenology of the divine, that is, it it opens a way for us to understand our actual experience of the divine. Um, But I'm not going to properly start with this until the next episode. For now, maybe it should suffice to say that when we're engaging subjectively with the divine, we are dealing with specific focal points dependent on our subjective perceptions. It doesn't necessarily encompass the full picture of what divinity involves or is like. So apart from you know dealing with what this illuminates regarding our relationship with God, maybe we should look at how this stuff offers us insights in terms of how we experience the world. Sometimes the order we currently have fails us, and the result is that we are overwhelmed by chaos. To be overwhelmed by chaos is, in a sense, to be forced to return to a primordial state in which chaos dragons and chaos oceans, primordial waters, need to be calmed, or in the dragon's case, slayed. This is how I read the intention of the story of Flood, in a way, um, as well as the idea that when one Leviathan is dead, there's another one that still needs to be slaughtered, which happens to be a key thing that I'd like to um, take from these creation stories. There is always another Leviathan. All of this then brings me back to Job. Job sees the world in a particular way. The world has been called to order in a particular way. There is a functional ontology at work in his own life. Normal looks pretty much normal. And we just happen to meet Job in the midst of this order, but then we read the story of how his life totally unravels. Leviathan is roused. And basically, this is a threat. The subtext of this rousing of Leviathan is not primarily about the question why bad things happen to good people, but it's a question more of what sense can be made out of this chaos, which is a question more along the lines of how do we kill the second Leviathan? Can normalcy or even a sense of normalcy be retrieved even when the second chaos dragon's arrival has been announced? The real threat that Job is faced with is precisely the threat of the second Leviathan. Even if one monster is dead, there's always another one that might just show up. If you've ever gone through some kind of trauma, this is actually what it feels like. Everything returns to a kind of primordial state of undifferentiated chaos. Nothing really makes sense. I spoke in the previous episode about meaning. Well, When everything falls apart, it's no wonder that it can feel very much like life is meaningless because we can't articulate the chaos that we've just encountered. That which disrupts the given order or sense of normal is precisely that which doesn't conform to the normal. 
There's no word, at least initially, that can describe it, which is why when people go through trauma, often their stories are a mess. Now, if you listen to someone recounting their trauma, especially um, if they've just gone through it, there are often moments where they backtrack and correct and change, and it, it's chaotic precisely because that's what the experience feels like. So logic really ceases to work when the second Leviathan shows up. And this is why, as I've already suggested, we need something outside of the chaos to help us to survive. Like Noah, we need an ark. Like the Israelites crossing the chaotic waters of the Red Sea, we need a path through it. Like anyone being baptized, we need something or someone to lift us out of the primordial dark water into something along the lines of resurrection. When we are faced with chaos, as my friend Louise once so perceptively put it, we can feel like we've lost our subjectivity. When the functional ontology that gave us direction and meaning and purpose has been torn to shreds, so are we. We, we then feel as if we've lost a set of coordinates according to which we might even function as subjects. Put even more boldly, in the face of overwhelming chaos, we are likely to forget who we are. We lose who we are. This is what happens for a lot of people who've lost their faith in God, for instance. Everything returns to the state of undifferentiated chaos. And in the process, they no longer know who they are. One of the chief sources of trauma is not the world itself, but our ability to cope with it. In other words, we may not be able to see clearly enough to name what is going on. And this is why it's remarkable to me that Job, despite his tremendous suffering, continues to talk and argue and bicker and complain. He wants to find words to create sense out of this undifferentiated chaos. If he can, in the fashion that Adam does back in Genesis, name the beast that has brought him such misery, then he may have a better uh, chance of actually dealing with it. If you've ever been to therapy, you'll know exactly how this works. You muddle along, wade through the chaos of your own existence, and, and through words and promptings and insights and tears and anger and all sorts of overwhelming emotions and struggles to articulate, you start to find a way to articulate what you can take from what has seemed to you like some kind of meaningless event or series of events. And in naming things, in the call for light to come out of the darkness and for it to be separated from the darkness, we can start to discover the self that has been reduced to ruins. You start to learn that this is who you are now, that everything has fallen to pieces. You still exist. You can still create something out of the catastrophe, even if you don't exactly know what that something is going to look like. I think this is part of the reason why chaos is represented as a dragon. A dragon is already in some sense differentiated. The first step towards killing the dragon is knowing what it actually looks like. In a surprising way, sort of like how chaos theorists map chaos using fractal geometry, the first step towards overcoming disorder is in knowing that it has the potential to fit into or become an alternate order. Knowing this then opens up a possibility, as painful and as difficult and even as seemingly impossible as it is, we can create something out of the disorder. When you read through the book of Job, you see that the threat of chaos is a constant theme, and you start to notice that Job 
refuses to back down. He will contend with his creator, with the one who names things and calls them into functional ontological being, because he knows something. He knows that this is how he will find his way through his pain and everything that that pain has done to him and in him. Whether the creator is the source of his suffering or not seems less of interest to Job than what we might expect. And we may be horrified in some way that Job even bothers to want to speak to the creator who for the most part seems indifferent to his suffering. But Job knows something that we should all remember. Sometimes any order is better than none at all. Even if it's the wrong order, it'll still be more redemptive than the complete annihilation of any kind of order, as well as the annihilation of any way of arriving at order. But once we've found order, we should not simply assume that it is the only order there to be found, because the second Leviathan is still alive, and it's always going to threaten our perceptual models of the real. When God shows up towards the end of the book of Job and asks Job if he can draw Leviathan out with a fish hook, we should pay attention, because this refers to another ancient Jewish myth in which an angel, with the help of God, catches this remaining dragon of chaos and puts an end to its life, and mercifully also manages to end its eternal sexual frustration. The meaning of this, as I see it, is that when you are faced with trauma and tragedy and the primordial dragon of chaos, you're going to need help. In a sense, you're going to need others to stand next to you and help you to figure out the mess. Solving the problem of the chaos dragon is not going to be possible if you're just on your own. Which is why, as I've already suggested, when I listen to Job's friends, my response is not to simply dismiss everything they're saying. They keep silent for a while, and then they start talking. And the traditional way of reading this text is to assume that when they start talking, that's when everything goes wrong. <laughs> that's how it goes, you know, a little bit like it did for Adam and Eve, a little pear-shaped. However, my feeling is that Job's friends are at the very least there, with Job, facing the chaos dragon. And even if not everything they say is helpful, they're at the very least trying to call the light out of the darkness. They're saying with their broken, hurting friend that there's a way to find order through chaos. And they're trying to do this, you know, in a very fumbly, flawed sort of human way. This frustrates Job, of course, but I have no doubt that it's less frustrating to him than it would be if he were totally on his own, trying to make sense of the chaos dragon without the words of other people. I know from experience, of course, that not everything my friends have said to me when I've gone through a rough time has helped. Still, the fact that they were there is what mattered. I guess the very least we can do for any of our friends when they face their own dragons and when they're drowning in the primordial chaos waters is to bring our fallible selves to the equation and ask, how can we face the second Leviathan together? Maybe another decent question to ask is this, how can I be of help? There's a difficulty all of this brings up, of course, and, and which I've managed to avoid dealing with for four episodes and it is this, who is the real chaos dragon in the story? Because it looks, at first, like it may be the Satan character, and then it looks, even more alarmingly, like it may even be the God character. And as I've mentioned before, God seems to be in some sense the God who creates not only order, but chaos too. So let's look at all of that in the next episode, shall we? 
I hope you will join me for that. And that's what I have for you for this episode. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. If you want to support the work that I do for it, you're very welcome to uh, use Patreon or buy my book. In my book, Seeing Things As They Are, I actually have a chapter on the book of Job. It's just one perspective on it, and in the series I'm offering a far more extensive take on the Job story, but you may find what I have to say there at least interesting and you know different from what you may expect. Thanks, by the way, uh, to those of you who have emailed me with feedback. I don't say this nearly enough, but I'm really grateful to to you for the kind words. And um, it's been encouraging to hear, um, especially how the rough sketches of ideas that I've shared on this podcast have been helpful to you. So thanks again, everyone. Uh, that is it from me for now. Cheers and take care. <laughs>